You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I, my role in this meeting is very short and sweet. I just want to say welcome to all of you. This meeting, uh, joint meeting organized by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Atlantic Council. Uh, this is a topic that, as your presence indicates, is of great interest to everybody and it's causing a great deal of concern. And, uh, <clears throat> And I'm looking forward very much to hear what the participants have to uh, to say. And welcome again, and I'll turn over the meeting then uh, to Peter. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Marina. Uh, I'm Peter Fahm, the director of the Michael S. Ansari Africa Center at the Atlantic Council. And I'm delighted we're here today at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and that we've been able to combine our resources with those of uh, Marina and her team to pull off this event. Uh, uh, we, I hope that this informal collaboration uh, uh, opens the door for, for their uh, more formal collaboration and of our synergies in the period coming up ahead. Uh, since the March 22nd so-called accidental coup, uh, which overthrew the elected government of Mali's President Amadou Toumani Touré, the international community has largely focused on resolving the political crisis in Bamako, uh, restoring constitutional order to the country, uh, and re rebuilding uh, the structures of governance. But while that has been going on, as you all know, the uh, situation in the north, which had been a low-level conflict and insurgency uh, since the end of last year, uh, took a turn for the worse, and in the days of March 30th, 31st, and 1st of April, uh, separatists in the north aligned with an Islamist uh, militia on Sardine, uh took control of the north, and since then we've seen the emergence of various and sundry Islamist groups uh, ranging from the well-known Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb to the less well-known movement for oneness and jihad in West Africa to assorted other uh, actors uh, with seeming provenance from sub-Saharan Africa, from other parts of the Sahel, the Maghreb, and it's become a real magnet for that. And we're delighted to put together this panel, which I'm surely going to turn things over to uh, push this discussion forward. Uh, you have their biographies in front of you, but I'm really delighted to welcome uh, uh, Rudy Atala, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Africa Center, an expert on the region, former counterterrorism director in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and one of the few people who spent a great deal of time on the ground and even uh, embedded with the Touareg in, in, in this region, so he knows the region well. And then he'll be followed by uh, Anwar Bukars, good friend. Uh, Anwar and I met a number of years ago at uh, one of those government locations with loud air conditioning units uh, playing in the background. Uh, and since then, we've had uh, fruitful collaboration on a number of fronts. And he, in addition to being uh, a professor at McDaniels College, is also co-head of the Mauritania Working Group here at the Carnegie Endowment, uh, as a great deal of work in this region as well. And finally, we're very honored to have with us His Excellency, the Ambassador, of, Niger, of the Republic of Niger to the United States, who will discuss 
his country's perspectives, his personal perspective as uh, a citizen uh, of this troubled region of the Sahel and uh, the implications of the crisis in northern Mali. I salute uh, His Excellency the Ambassador of Mali for joining us and uh, certainly uh, welcome his participation. And without, so without further ado, and I'd really uh, like to start with Rudy, give us an introduction to the, the matter at hand. And, All right, um, I know we have a wide range of people here from uh, those who are familiar with the geography of, uh, of Mali to those who are not familiar with the geography of Mali. So I figured uh, for those of you who are new to Africa for the first time, just to kind of get a point of reference, there's uh, the country of Mali, and uh, this is what we're going to be talking about today. So to start off with, uh, the northern parts of Mali is a very complex area uh, at present, and we have multiple groups, multiple actors. Uh, just for reference, these groups are not a, a, all-encompassing. Within these groups, you also have offshoots and different acronyms kind of blend in under, under an umbrella, for instance, the MNLA. So what I'm going to do today is kind of briefly talk about these groups, but in order to get to, the, to where we are today, it's important to understand historically how we got there. So in particular, I'm going to focus more on the Tuaregs themselves. <clears throat> As some of you know, Mali is very diverse, populations approximately 15 million. The Tuaregs make up somewhere around 1.5 million. Um, of that 1.5 million, there's a real, not a real good census for the exact numbers, but that's just a rough estimate. Um, the Tuaregs themselves are spread across five countries, Mali, Algeria, Libya, Niger, and Burkina Faso. They have a very complex uh, tribal structure, and it's very hierarchical. Up to 50, about 50 years ago, uh, up to that point, really they weren't cohesive and they didn't think of themselves as one collective group. Uh, their belief system is a mixture of Islam and animism. Um, I spent a lot of time with Tuaregs in uh, 2000 and 2003, and I got to experience uh, some of their, uh, their, their differences in some of their theistic beliefs. It was pretty interesting. Um, Tuaregs like to call themselves Kel Tamashek. If you hear that, it means the people that speak the Tamashek language, and they, they like to be referred to as such. The first, when going back to the 50s, we started to see the wind of change across Africa. And during that time period, uh, the Tuaregs began to conceive this concept, this, this thought of uh, kind of a... a an area, a landmass called Azwad, in which they would call independent in their own. There's, they start seeing independence happening all across, the uh, all across the continent, and they want that for themselves. Following Mali's independence in 1960, the Tuaregs wanted to benefit from the opportunities that the government would give. But however, there was a distrust between them and the government because they didn't want the folks from the south, who are ethnically different, controlling their region and their ways. So they were concerned primarily with the post-Mali leadership that came from the south. They were concerned that land reform would threaten their privileged access to agricultural products. And they were afraid that the state national elites would destroy Tuareg culture under the guise of modernization. So there were some concerns there. Following 1960s uh, independence, 
the first Tuareg uprising happened in early 1962. And it began with small hit-and-run raids in the north, and then slowly, slowly began to escalate into more sophisticated attacks by 1963. But the problem is, is they weren't unified in the way they approached these attacks. They didn't have a cohesive plan. And so the Malian military responded with force. And in so, there was uh, a captain who got his name, um, Captain uh, D.B. Silas Diara, was nicknamed the Butcher of Kidal by the Tuaregs because of the onslaught that took place in the north. So Mali responded with an iron fist. And some of the Tuaregs that were not members or belonged to the insurgency themselves, when they saw that, they, they, they stepped away and they had a bad taste in their mouth saying, if this is, this is how they're going to be treated, then we don't want any part of that. The government began to alienate the Tuaregs who were not supportive of the insurgents. And so by the 1970s and 1980s, it was decades of drought. And the Tuaregs themselves started to push into neighboring countries. And some of them went from, they fled into Algeria, Libya, Niger, Mauritania, and Burkina Faso. Many of the young Tuaregs were enticed by the oil boom that was going on to the north. Countries like Algeria and Libya were areas to go to. Well, primarily Libya, you saw a lot of young Tuaregs going up there. And they got into the oil industry, and some of them also were recruited or volunteered into Gaddafi's military. This is where you start seeing the genesis of what's happening today. They, over the years, they gained significant combat experience in places like the Chadian War. Some of them went to Lebanon during the Civil War there. They deployed in different areas, and they got their combat experience. All the time, they had this love-hate affair with Gaddafi. Essentially, he would throw money at them, and he'd say, hey, you guys are my brothers. We come from the desert. But at the same time, he never truly supported their independence of Azwad. He would push them in other places. By 1985, the world oil prices collapsed, and Libya, Libya's oil industry laid off a large portion of the people, and some of these young men returned home basically disillusioned and upset. <clears throat> by, the 19, by June 1990, there was another Tuareg uprising. This time, it was led by a guy that we see today in the news, uh, Iyad Aghali. Iyad Aghali is actually the leader of Ansaruddin. But I'll touch on that in a little bit. So Aghali had started up his own group called the Popular Movement for the Liberation of Azwad, or MPLA. And bear with me, it's, it's constant acronyms because they're always changing. Like in the 1960s, the Tuaregs were not uh, united as one force. However, they were a little bit more organized and they were a little bit more um, apt with, uh, with uh, capability because they were slightly better equipped. However, they weren't very well equipped. And during this time period, uh, the president of Mali saw that military force was not going to work. And so he accepted Algeria's uh, open hand extension to mediate between the, the warring parties. So they brought, Algeria brought everybody together and uh, they began discussions uh, for some kind of mediation. They signed the Accords of Taman Raset, and the provisions that they came up with included ceasefire and exchange of prisoners, withdrawal of insurgent forces to cantonments, reduction of the army's presence in the north, especially Kidal, which is a big point for the Tuaregs, elimination of selected military posts that threatened Tuareg communities, 
Integration of insurgents into the Malian military ranked to be determined at the time. An acceleration of ongoing processes for decentralization in the North Mali and a guarantee that a fixed portion of Mali's um, uh, infrastructural investment would go to the North. Precisely 47%, and that's something that they've always wanted. They want that investment into their infrastructure. Tourism is a big thing for, for the Tuaregs. But there were, after this accord, there was continuous, continual distrust between the, the different members. Um, by 1992, there was a coup in Mali, and the president was ousted. So it was all coming at the same time. All at the, and so by 1992, new elections happened. A new president was elected. And they formed the National Pact, brought all the communities together, reiterated what was discussed in the Algiers Accord, but also in addition to that, uh, there, was, there was some major agreements made between the different ethnic groups. One of the significant results uh, that came about was the integration of some of the young Tuaregs into the military, Malian military, the police force, and in certain uh, government uh, organizations. And so this is where there was a period of, from 1992 to 1994, that integration process, especially on the military side, was very, very painful. Because you also had the distrust, but they had to work together. So the National Pact was, was part of that solution. And so the Tuaregs wanted uh, things to work out because in the integration process, they found a way for the young men to, to have, one, to have solid jobs, Two, that their communities now would be policed by their own people that are integrated with the Malian forces. And at the same time now, you don't have to worry about this youth going out and doing bad things. We still see that today, but I'll get to that in a minute. So things pushed on and by, um, through, through the late 90s into early 2000, everything was fine. Third Tuareg Rebellion happens on 23 May 2006, and that lasted through February of 2009. A new group now emerges from within the Tuaregs called the Democratic Alliance for Change, ADC, which attacked military installations in Kidal and Manaka, and it was led by a guy named Ibrahim Ag Bahanga. Bahanga's name is... Uh, some people in today, some scholars believe that Bahanga is the mastermind behind w what's taken place so far in the north. Um, Algeria stepped in to, to, to broker an agreement um, and basically reiterated the national pact demands, the things that were discussed previously in the 1990s. So for six years, what you have is a waffling back and forth of you know, sometimes peace and sometimes no peace. And, and, and uh, Bahanga continued this by pushing attacks whenever he could and taking in prisoners. Well, Bahanga was exiled in 2009 to Libya and pushed. And so peace returns kind of to the north. And for a while, Bahanga now in Libya starts to go out and reach out to people from his ethnic clan, his Tuareg ethnic clans, that were members and officers in the Libyan military. And slowly he convinces them that they need to uh, go into their depots of weapons and see if we can take some of them out and cross-border them into, into <clears throat> Mali. Well, when the uprising happens in uh, February 2011 in, um, in Libya, 
what you have is a bunch of Tuaregs now moving off from Libya and making their way into the deserts of Mali with a larger arsenal than before. So now they're well-equipped, they're well-trained, and some of these guys come in with combat experience. And so this is where we start leading this genesis of what we have today. This led to the, to the fourth uprising, which happened on 17 January of this year. Prior to that, in October of 2011, Bahanga himself, who actually died in a car accident in August 2011, prior to that had brought all of these Tuaregs, and he comes from the, the elite north, um, uh, gr a group of Tuaregs from the, from the elite uh, aristocracy, and then try to b bring them all together as a unified saying, hey, we need, to, we need to come back, we need to fight for Aswad, we need to take over Aswad. So, am I, how am I doing on time? Pretty close? I'll, I'll wrap it up pretty quickly. A anyway, uh, what you have is, this is what led to the soup salad. After the insurgency began, you, you start seeing different groups popping up. The current group right now, and what's really different in the fourth uprising from the previous three uprisings is they were well organized from October prior to January, October 2011. When they got together, they started airing out some of their differences. Not all Tuaregs still see eye to eye. Some of them disagree. But for the bulk of them, they all kind of pulled together and informed the MNLA, which, which is now the voice that's speaking for Aswad. Another interesting point that they brought on is in previous uprisings, they did not have a really good savvy media component. So the Facebook generation stepped in. The young youth that have been educated abroad, that, that knew how to use the internet, if you actually go on Facebook, God bless you, if you go on Facebook, you'll see that MNLA actually has a page. You'll see, you'll see uh, you know, different photos of Bahanga. He's got his own website. So they're pushing this this, uh, this media machine and they want to reach out to the international community to let them know what they're doing and where they're going. In the soup salad you have Ansar al-Din, which is currently led by uh, Yad Aghali and this guy has been reformed. He went to Saudi Arabia as a consul in 2008 uh, when he was exiled to Saudi Arabia. He went to Jeddah and for several years he ended up courting people that were more radical in their, in, in their, in their faith. And uh, he was persona non grata out of Saudi Arabia in 2010 and now came in and because the MNLA would not accept him in, he basically formed his own group called Ansar al-Din. The, uh, the other two groups, uh, AQIM, I, I leave that at, for the Q&A session, but AQIM is, is still present. However, the bulk of the majority of the MNLA consider AQIM outsiders. They're not Tuaregs. And so they don't want these outsiders to have any part of the new uh, region of Aswad. They don't want them part of the, the new government of Aswad. How, however, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And the last two groups I'll talk about, and Peter touched on in two seconds, you have the FLNA, uh, FLNA, again, soup salad here. These guys are predominantly Arabs from Timbuktu, about 500, who want to return Timbuktu to an area of peace, and they want to push for tourism. They, wanna, they, they want that, that economic uh, push to come back to Timbuktu, so they form their own group. And the other one is an offshoot, the uh, 
uh, Mujao is an offshoot of AQIM, and these guys are holding Algerians for ransom, and they're also holding two Spanish and one Italian for ransom, demanding a lot of money. I'll leave it at that, and we can pick up in the Q&A session. All right? Thanks. Thank you. Uh, for that brief and giving us the context for his events, and I'll turn it over to Anwar to uh, take it from there. All right. All right. <clears throat> Thanks, Peter. Um, so the situation in, in Mali is marked by, by confusion, I mean, politically and militarily. First, never before have we seen all components of Malian political and civil society so divided. Second, the army does not represent a unified homogeneous bloc. So the clashes a few weeks ago between the Green Barats, which includes Captain, Captain Sanago, and the Red Barats, who were close to former President uh, Amadou Toumani Touri, showed that not all the military were supportive of the junta. But the outcome of the clashes also proved that the junta in power has a solid base within the army. Sanago came out stronger. Those lined up behind him <clears throat> uh, have for years resented the military top brass for corruption and for having colluded with the ousted president in gutting the army. So let's look at the roots of the crisis quickly. First, the Malian, Malian crisis was not created by the Libyan civil war. The Libyan conflict was the trigger for the crisis, right? With the influx of large number of well-armed and well-trained fighters, but the conflict did not create the turmoil in Mali. Discontent before uh, uh, the outbreak of the uprising was nearing boiling point for quite some time, and the Tuareg activists were mobilizing inside and outside Mali because there was a feeling within the Tuareg community that the government did not fully live up to its commitments regarding the peace settlements it agreed to implement. So the, the North was headed for an explosion before the outbreak of the civil war and the collapse of the Gaddafi regime. Once the conflict in Libya started, then the Malian government did not or did little to manage the influx uh, of returnees and especially this arm, the former Libyan soldiers. This is in contrast to what happened in Niger. Uh, why that was done, uh, we, we can talk uh, obviously about it later. So there are five main causes, or at least we can identify five main sources of the conflict and insecurity in Mali. First is the gradual political decay and breakdown of state institutions. Pervasive corruption and weak governance were critical sources of popular dissatisfaction leading to social friction, tension, and eventually a military mutiny that led to the overthrow of the government. Second is the lack of a credible uh, and serious settlement to the grievances of the historical Tuareg and Arab insurgencies that started, as Rudy said, in the 1960s and lasted uh, uh, till the 2000s. Third, transborder criminal and terrorist activity linked to the history of armed conflict in northern Mali. Fourth is the dismantling of the Gaddafi regime. And fifth is the unwillingness or maybe the inability 
of Algeria to play a leading role now that its Libyan rival can't do that anymore. There is suspicion within Mali and Mauritania and elsewhere of a hidden Algerian agenda. And this suspicion does not help in the coordination uh, of a response to, to the conflict. So the military success of the, uh, of the insurgency, the military success of the insurgency can be attributed to all these factors. Now let us look at some of these factors that, uh, that are most important. The first one is the decay of institutions. That's critical. Many Malians feel that the country's political elites have abdicated their responsibility to secure the northern part of the country. The northerners do not see the peace dividends promised in the previous peace accords. For example, devolution. Funding for the evolution is one, as well as the integration of Tuareg insurgents in, in, uh, in the army, as you mentioned, uh, Rudy. Instead, what the government was doing, the deposed government, seemed to rely or to bank on Malian's neighbors to maintain the peace. Gaddafi played a major role, especially after 2006, not so much so in 1991. He used Libya's financial largest to pay for development projects in the north. He recruited insurgents in his army, as well as paid Tuaregs to join the Malian army. So the use of Libyan patronage helped to attenuate uh, local tensions. In the West, in France, in the United States, and elsewhere, Malian politics was seen as a model for them of democratization, while Malians, they seethed under a political system that was based on patronage. So foreign observers mistook the democratization in Mali for a model of as scholars call it, uh, consensual democracy. So the result was democratic stagnation, which lost it, its legitimacy. Let's look at some data. When Tory became president in 2002, Mali was ranked by Transparency International 77th of 182 in its corruption index. By 2011, it had fallen to 118th. Allegations about drug trafficking including in the former president's inner circle, have been numerous. So worse, this wide corruption and mismanagement had had a disastrous impact on the country's national security. Resources were poorly allocated. The military was severely underfunded. The Malian army was undersized and under-equipped right, for the size of its territory. For example, it had 12,000 150 men in 2009 with a budget of 176 million dollars. So the military lacked even uh, uh, the most basic means like fuel and ammunition. Fuel and ammunition to keep order in northern Mali, let alone to police its borders, right, and to combat uh, regional terrorism and the drag syndicates. So it is in this context that we can understand the military coup that overthrew a democratically elected government. The military, as one scholar noted, has become a vehicle for the expression of popular dissatisfaction with the political elites. A form of, quote, a, 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 a form of grassroots assertion. So the March 2000 coup was not planned, but it was driven by this deep anger among the rank and file soldiers against their, their bosses. 
It is this same frustration that has led many Malians today to be hostile to the current transitional leadership. The new interim president right, was previously a minister of defense. He was not popular in the army. Right? Traore, Traore was also the interim president, a former president of parliament, and he's a member of the traditional elites. Sanago, the coup leader, however, is not. So many Malians, or at least from what reportedly, uh, do not like Traore, the new interim president, or at least a significant number of Malians, because there is a kind in Mali today of a collective rejection of the political elite, of Bamako. The excesses, the corruption, the mismanagement of the state, its laxist control of the political and military authorities have all created conditions for the collective rejection of political elites. This is extremely dangerous. Why? Because leaders of the junta today and other political actors, they accuse the whole political system of corruption. So Captain Sinago comes and, and, and states like, and politicians like Omar Mariko, that look, we were not associated with the exercise of political power. Right? So this allows them to claim that they are totally incorruptible. Right? And they are the only ones in Mali who can restore A, territorial integrity, and B, defend the general interest against corruption. So the mob attack that we have seen in Mali's capital, Bamako, against Traore, appeared to reflect right, the popular opposition to a deal brokered by ECOWAS, right, which is the economic community of West African state. The mob, the army, and much of the local population, or at least against significant uh, number of the local population, uh, appear opposed, they appear to be opposed to this new political deal, interim deal, and they seem to trust Sanago, or at least it appears that they want Sanago to become president. Remember, this is exactly what happened in 2009 in, uh, in Guinea, Conakry. Conakry. After years of political turmoil, low-ranking military officers led by then-Captain Kamara took power in 2009, and the coup appeared again to enjoy support among segments of the population. So parts of the population today in Mali and elsewhere, they tend to believe in the possibility of a savior. Right? And the army seems to play that role, the low-ranking element. So there are several uh, challenges in, in Mali today. Right? How to support the civilian go government of Traore, and I think you have to support despite its faults and weaknesses. Right? How to keep the pressure in the junta leaders and their political supporters while at the same time ensuring that the Malian army does not fragment, weaken, further weaken or radicalize. So it's important that the Malian government in its civil and military components be reconstructed. Second, uh, another important element is the insurgency in northern Mali is considered as a Tuareg affair. That's not fully accurate, right? That's what our friend stated here. There are groups in the north like Songhai, Fulani, Arab, Berabichis, Moors, and others who oppose seceding from Mali, right? In fact, there have been public protests against the MNLA, with many non-Tuareg civilians saying they do not want 
independence. So these why? Because these groups feel that they will lose out in a deal in which the Tuaregs control uh, uh, the system. Also, not all northern Malians who served in the Libyan army were Tuareg. Not all of them, right? And some did not join the insurgency. Okay? So not all of them were Tuaregs who served in the Qaddafi, and not all of them joined the insurgency. In fact, there are reports that some had joined the government at first, before it collapsed. So describing the revolt as Tuareg is not accurate. Northern Mali is Politically, socially, ethnically heterogeneous. The Tuaregs themselves are divided, and, I'll, and I'll, uh, I won't uh, uh, elaborate on that point here. Third, uh, where, where does Al-Qaeda fit in, into all of this? Quickly, the coexistence of various Islamist currents in other Mali should not be overstated. The threat should be carefully, carefully analyzed. First, Islam is not, has never been monolithic. Right? Most Islamist movements in Mali do not advocate the use of violence. Whether, so whether it's in the north or the south, there are groups, right? or there have been groups claiming to represent a more authentic form of Islam. And they have been tried hard to convert other Malians into specific <coughs> practices. Here, by, by that we mean the, the implemented, rigorous implementation of Islamic law, Sharia law. So there have been preachers coming from Saudi Arabia or that have gone to Saudi Arabia, Ayad al-Ghadi comes to a point, and they have gradually gained, gained ground. Why? Salafism has made some inroads into Malian urban areas, not in rural areas, for several reasons. First is globalization. That's an important point to, uh, to remember. Uh, one scholar put it, I think, uh, uh, nicely. He said, increasing interaction with the global economy through the mining industry, tourism, notably from the Gulf, aid, remember, uh, the North was devastated by famines, 60, uh, 70s and 80s, created new opportunities for transnational actors to come to Mali. The advent of democracy, too, in 1992, allowed some activists, moderate and radical alike, to air their views and proselyte. So it's natural that this influenced the local dynamics and led to some changes in local practices. Again, in urban areas. In rural areas, however, this aggressive attitude right, towards proselytizing uh, would trigger a violent reaction within a population whose religious views are deeply uh, shaped by Sufism. So we have to be very careful when we analyze radical Islam in Mali. There is a tendency to conflate between the different Islamic uh, uh, practices. Ansar Dean, for example. Ansar Dean is Tuareg armed movements with Salafist leanings. Its leader is Ayad Ghali, who has good relations with Al Qaeda, right? He is an influential Tuareg who reportedly embraced Salafism in 1999. He's, however, however, he's known for his pragmatism and opportunism, both. That's important to remember. Remember, he has worked for the deposed Malian president. He has had good relations with Algerian security services, at least until very recently. He's also the go-to guy for hostage negotiation. If you want to free your hostages, you go and see. Ayad Laghali, right? That's important to remember. Whenever it serves his purposes, he makes it known that he's related to Turkey. Talib is an AQ, Qaeda uh, Islamic Maghreb commander, who reports to Abu Zaid, Qaeda Islamic Maghreb Emir, Algeria. 
That connection is critical for him to show that he has the muscle of Al-Qaeda behind him. At the same time, he tries to reassure the population and he claims that his worldview is closer to the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. And sometimes he goes further and he says, mine in fact is closer to Nada in Tunisia. Right? So again, one, I'm going to quote one observer who has been following Ayat al He said, whatever his personal views, it's important to understand why members of Ghali's movement cannot have been recruited on an ideological basis. This is what he can do, why he is influential. He can call on the backing of his own lineage or clan, the support of the people he fought with in previous Twergo rebellions, or he simply offers more money. He has more money. That's why you see that they're flirting with the MNLA. Both of them would benefit uh, from such a deal. So we should be very careful not to overanalyze the religious commonalities between Islamist groups in, 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 in Mali. Qaeda, we all know it has its origin in Algeria, it was pushed into Mali 2003. There is Mujwa, the unity movement for jihad in West Africa, newcomer to the jihad is seen very, very confusing. It claims that it differs from Al-Qaeda. However, it has been targeting only Algeria so far. Three targets, all of them uh, Algerians, and we, we can talk about why. Why just there are different uh, interpretations, and I think I'll just I'll just stop stop here, and uh, allow the rest for Q and A. Thank you. Thank you, Anwar. And now, great honor to turn to uh, the ambassador of the Republic of Niger, uh, who reminds us that this, although that we focus on Mali and specifically northern Mali, this crisis has regional implications. Uh, because of this vast space of the Sahel is is really a front uh, a, a belt that connects the Maghreb and uh, sub-Saharan Africa, the West and the East, and it's really a, a continuous geopolitical space uh, uh, where things cannot be so readily isolated. So, Excellency, please. Uh, thank you, Peter. Uh, allow me, I'll just stay here. Please from here. Uh, thanks to uh, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace for this great opportunity. It's, I was almost thinking, wow, when I was listening to my colleagues here, uh, because the situation is so complex, but it hits also too close to home for me to play the scholar, so to speak. I feel I'm invited here because also I, am, I, I come from the newly coined arc of instability, the Sahel, <laughs> and that I should speak from my heart. Uh, I will try to be brief to give time, time for dialogue one more dialogue, because I, I think we're getting into that mode now, and maybe something else now needs to be done. Uh, I will beg your indulgence, uh, 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 as my short intervention may sound undiplomatic at times. That's how to do with my recent itinerary. Uh, um, my itinerary is not just one of a diplomat, if we mean by this someone who watches himself as uh, all the time in order to, to be politically correct. I have been asked to talk about how the crisis in Northern Mali affects neighboring countries, what they need to defend themselves against the spread of contagion, and how they view the crisis being settled. Let me, so, let me then approach this from another angle, a more personal one, as I was implying. In December 2001, working with UNICEF in Nigeria, I received an email from headquarters in New York, from the boss herself, that was Carol Bellamy, for those of you who know a bit UNICEF, reading, I want Maman in Kabul on 14 December 
end of discussions. And to Kabul, to Kabul I went to advise the Minister of Education, strive to returning millions of young girls to school. Girls were denied of their rights to education by a group claiming to speak in the name of the same God I pray, same God I pray five times a day. Sometimes a little bit more than five times, but that's, that's five times is a mandatory one. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, girls, girls are, not already, are already not going to school in northern Mali. Please return that as a first impact of what's happening there. To me, as an edu educationist, this is the first terrible wave of crisis in northern Mali is affecting all of us. Because uh, I also have a hard time thinking that there will be, there will be a differential impact. Uh, I see uh, if you touch a Malian girl or a child, you touch a Nigerian child or a Mauritanian child. And, and I would even say uh, a girl from Wyoming, for that matter, or Wyoming, you say here. Secondly, a week ago, Ertarian Kazin, uh, this is a new executive director of WFP, the World Food Program, uh, visited my country, Niger. I believe that was her first travel after she assumed office. She wrote to a common friend this, Maurice, imagine having nothing else to eat, or to eat, except dried leaves. So dry, you have to boil them nine times before they become edible. Now, imagine having no choice but to feed your small children those leaves. Earlier this month, she added, I visited Niger where mothers had to do just that. In the Sahel region of West Africa, drought and high food prices are pushing more than 9 million people closer and closer to the edge of survival. The crisis in Mali has already pushed hundreds of mothers and fathers. I mean, I ended the quote. This is me talking now. The crisis in Mali has pushed hundreds of mothers and fathers and children on the road, and many more are likely to follow as people will be voting with their feet, you can imagine that, to flee from intolerance. With a consequence that the land won't be cultivated, and this is the rainy season now starting, and the countries they will go to will face even more constraint to feed the population plus the incoming ones. Uh, let's talk, to my own talk about my own country, Niger. Before the Malian crisis, Niger already reported a deficit of close to 700,000 tons of cereals for the season. And now, as we speak, the capital in Niamey, the capital in Niamey, our capital, we have there, we have to provide also for our Malian brothers and sisters coming from Gao, which is just 300 kilometers away. We do it because that's the way we are. Because we are the same also. My own great-grandfather came from Masina in Mali. I've never been to Masina, but I, I have that connection in my blood, in my way of thinking. And so they come, they are with us. We are the same. So there is urgency for my country and all of us in the region. And I frankly, we frankly believe that an international solution is the way out. I will come back to that. Um, when I talk about Niger, I'm talking about a country that faced very already the return of 250,000 of its citizens following the Libyan crisis. Libya, where they were working and providing for their families back home. 
On the security front, I need not elaborate because our friends have talked about it and we can go into it, into discussions. We all know, but we all know that the lack of what we call in French service après vente, which is uh, in, in English, I guess, after sell service, of the forces that got us rid of Gaddafi did not help the region. Hence what we talk about, all these arms all over. The consequence, or should I say impact, is that Niger just decided to divert $20 million to buy arms instead of medicine or food or educational materials. Another impact, the one that we've been talking but we don't talk enough about, and which is not a secret, is Akim's control of drug smuggling routes throughout the region. And only God, only Allah knows what connections are being established with, say, Boko Haram in northern Nigeria to create havoc in Nigeria and sooner or later in Niger. Ladies and gentlemen, terrorists are consolidating their position by the day in northern Mali, and we are just talking in countless meetings. Do we pretend to ignore their agenda? We know it is to further weaken the states in the region and to create a sanctuary towards what my minister recently, about 10 days ago here, called the Afghanization of the Sahel, closer to Europe. <clears throat> and that's why we, why we believe that it's urgent for the international community to act, given that regional bodies have been slower for a number of reasons. That also we can, we can discuss. In Niger, we'd go for measures whereby the AU, the African Union, and ECOWAS, but also five members of the Security Council of the UN, and all those ready to combat, to combat the scourge of terrorism, act together. Because one day that we let Akim at its ease in Mali and the Sahel is one day against peace and security at a global level. Uh, in the immediate, I could say, for example, that our friends in the US, and we're talking to them, could provide logistic support, equipment, intelligence, training to forces, armed forces in the region. But that has to be done in close collaboration with countries of the region. Someone mentioned Algeria. I've grown up admiring that country for what they've done for the region in terms of independence and really sense of freedom. I strongly still believe that they should be providing us leadership in, in, in this new fight, in the new challenge the region is facing. We also have Nigeria, but we can, can keep talking about these things. We are not asking, you know, I mean, we, we are realistic. We're not asking that American soldiers come and fight for us. Uh, this is our Sahel. We have to retain a concerted leadership of stakes concern the whole world. We had the friends of Libya for one country, Libya. Why not the friends of Mali or the friends of Sahel, the Sahel? To cut what I call the head of a snake before it spreads its message of hatred all across West Africa and beyond. Let me conclude by saying that what is at stake is also democracy. And we heard how everything went to work in, in Mali. <coughs> Remember President Obama's Accra speech of three years ago? Africa needs strong institutions and not strong men. Well, if care is not taken, we'll soon see the return of strong men and dictatorships all over because people will say, 
hey, democracy doesn't work because it just opens avenues to terrorism and chaos. Friends of democracy just talk while terrorists act. And soon, our people, if we continue, would be looking at father figures. Someone mentioned saviors. I said father figure because I'm sure mothers don't usually get into this kind of backward nonsense. I'm convinced of that. Frankly, it is also a matter of credibility for regional organization and for the international community. I really wanted to, to talk this way and not get into technicalities because that's not my terrain. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Ambassador. Uh, before opening it up to uh, general questions, I'd like to pose a question to the panel. Although I think I, I agree with the ambassador's comment that we need to look forward to solutions to this, I think uh, in order to move forward, we also have to take a, a look back. And uh, the one thing that strikes me in this crisis, both the crisis of the institutions in Bamako and the crisis in northern Mali, has been how few were those almost non-existent but few were those who saw this coming. Uh, Anwar, you spoke about uh, the lack of popularity, the resentment uh, uh, of the regime, the government that was in power before, before the coup. Uh, Rui, you talked about the situation in the north, uh, the history behind the current <laughs> uprising and the, the, the three previous ones. Uh, we know that the you know, the, one of the cliches that uh, uh, Anwar and I and uh, Rudy and I confronted in this house, secular uh, liberation movements don't make alliances with Islamist groups, uh, despite the fact that uh, I've, I've argued repeatedly that uh, extremist groups can be extraordinarily pragmatic in how they align. So how, and maybe before we go forward, if any of you care to comment on why is it that we missed at least two major crises, we can parse into more crises, that hit us in the last two months. How do we miss seeing this coming? I mean, as I, as I, as I mentioned in my, in my presentation, I mean, the ingredients for, for a conflagration, I think, were there. It was only a matter of time uh, when would the next uprising breakout. I mean, there have been reports that the Tuaregs, as I said, were mobilizing inside and also outside uh, uh, Mali. There has been the, the resentment and discontent has been growing against uh, the, the, the status quo. Uh, so, so whether we expected it, obviously, to, uh, to, to erupt when it did, uh, I mean, sure, we can ask that question, but I think uh, uh, that that uh, uh, that the hints were, were were in the ball. And just to add to that, and maybe probably to piggyback, I think um, one thing that led to this fourth uprising, and you know, they say, you know, three times a charm, maybe four times for the Tuaregs are to keep trying until they get it right. Um, it, the investments that were at least to my understanding, coming from the government of Mali to the north, were recently been going more towards building military installations in the north 
versus helping build the infrastructures that the Tuaregs wanted and expanding in the region. Mm -hmm. And that in itself upset many of the Tuareg leadership. So this long love-hate affair that's been going on for a long time now has been even more inflamed. And, and that took a toll when they saw that this militarization is starting to take place up in the north. They thought of, uh, you know, we need to strike now before we get ingrained by the military and we can't do anything anymore in the future. When they took advantage on 17 January and things started to have a major meltdown in the north, in conjunction, it was a perfect storm. The coup happened in March in the south, and, and it, was, it, it was easy for them by 6 April to call Azawad free and liberated. Uh, let me say this. Uh, I mean, in Niger, we had rebellions in the past. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, we sort out our things. In Mali, you, you yourself said you have maybe 1.5 million Tuaregs. I mean, you know, we, we have to look at the figures. 1.5, yeah. Yeah, uh, but you also have a song guy. Uh, you have a Fulanese like myself who follow cows. Mm -hmm. You have you have other people. Uh, we had our rebellions, but we settled things. Mm -hmm. The ingredients, the, the extra ingredient we had is is the sophistication of the arms. The fact that people are close close their eyes, not only the Malians, on the traffic drug trafficking routes, on the fact that Akami uh, Akmi was making inroads within the Sahel. So we have to ask people about their responsibilities. When I think, I think about the regional powers, I think about the US that supposed to be looking into these things. I think about the Europeans. When you got a hostage taken and then you go quickly and pay, what signal are you, are you, are you, are you sending? Of course we know the, 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 the countries are weak. And, and, and voice, see the sign coming, uh, maybe someone also say, hola, let's stop this and let's look into it more seriously. Uh, to me, that's also what happened. If not because of sophistication of the armament they, have, they had, they couldn't have possibly taken Gao, Kidal, Gao, Tomuktu in, in three days, plus the collapse of the army. Mm -hmm. So now, Sanogo is, is, may have some popularity among certain groups, Though I'm questioning that now, but clearly, if we continue accepting that he's sitting in, in Bamako calling shots, even if we have a, a government, traditional government, then we won't have any solutions. And what that would give us is more and more ACME consolidating itself and taking us to, to more problems in the Sahel. I prefer to look at it that, like, that way rather than really uh, talking about, about, about why we miss the sign. I mean, we should also try to find us the answers within the establishment here, in Algiers, in Nigeria, uh, in everybody who has resources to really see things coming, and more importantly, to, to say, let's stop this nonsense. That's what I think has been missing. Not that we haven't seen it coming. We saw it coming, but it also gets the pace went faster because of what happened in Libya. Thank you. Now we open it to, uh, to questions. Uh, please uh, the, uh, limit yourself to a, a question and please identify yourself uh, uh, clearly. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Mr. Peter Pham. 
my name is Keita. I'm ambassador of Mali. I'm not on the list of uh, speakers, but uh, uh, I think that uh, I have to uh, make some uh, clarifications about the, uh, the August speakers. Uh, uh, at first, uh, for uh, we have to know that in Mali, there is not only one crisis, as you indicated here. There is three crises in Mali. Uh, the first one is the constitutional and institutional uh, crisis in Bamako uh, issued by uh, the coup of uh, the 22nd of uh, March, uh, who enabled uh, the armed groups, including uh, MNLA, to occupy today the two-thirds of, uh, of the country. The second one is the problem, uh, the problem of revendications of uh, some Tuaregs. Revendication of independence or other revendication for development or other things. Uh, the third uh, and most uh, serious crisis is the uh, presence of uh, these uh, armed groups, uh, including Al Qaeda, Akmi, uh, Boko Haram, Al Shabaab. All these terrorist groups they are present today in uh, in Bamako. So to tackle this uh, problem we have to, uh, to, to get this global uh, vision about the real situation uh, about the real situation in Mali. Uh, Mr. Atallah, uh, <laughs> my brother Atallah, uh, yeah, talked about uh, uh, this, uh, the number of uh, Tuaregs, 5 million. Is that possible? 5 no, million? Uh, I said 1.5. Uh, 1.5. Okay, 1.5. I think, ma'am, uh, 1, uh, 1, 1 million, it's not real. It's not a real number. Nobody has the real number of the Tuaregs uh, who are in Mali, uh, South Algeria, uh, Mauritania, the east of Mauritania, Niger, Libya, nobody. But you, to, 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 to Anwar, I will say that uh, you have to, uh, to know the origins of the Tuaregs. Mm -hmm. The Tuaregs, they are uh, what we call the Berber or Amazigh, the Amazigh people. Eh? Uh, uh, it's not uh, it's, it's not these people, the Tuaregs who fled from uh, Mali because of the drought, and uh, they found themselves in uh, in uh, in uh, in Libya or other uh, northern countries of uh, of Africa. There are peoples from there. This is Amazigh or Berber groups. Uh, origins from they are in Morocco, uh, in uh, Tunisia, in Libya, uh, starting from Yefren and other uh, the south of uh, they are everywhere. Uh, this is the origins. So to understand the, 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 this declaration of independence of uh, Azawad uh, Republic, the Azawad Republic uh, is not concerned. It's not only the north of Mali. Uh, they have other ambitions to destabilize Algeria, to take the south of Algeria, to take the, the south of uh, Libya, the west of uh, Niger. So uh, I'm not, I'm not on, on the list of uh, speakers, but I have to uh, precise something to, uh, to be clear. Uh, for you. When you talk about uh, the popular opposition, uh, 
to a popular opposition in Mali. There is no popular opposition in Mali. Uh, yourself, you mentioned Mariko and uh, this other, uh, uh, the few of people who are manifesting in favor of uh, of Sanogo. Uh, this is uh, opportunistic peoples. On the other side, you have, uh, you have the most, the biggest uh, political parties, uh, the, lead, the leader, uh, the political and uh, civic uh, opinion leaders in Mali, they form, they compose what we call the, uh, the front of democratics. Uh, they had to to make uh, uh, <coughs> manifestations uh, the uh, the day before yesterday, but we convinced them not to move. It's not uh, to to make a, a civil war uh, in Mali. This is the real uh, political uh, and uh, civic society uh, leaders who are in Mali. Uh, uh, five days ago, Sanogo disappeared. He disappeared entirely from uh, from Bamako. He is there. He is hidden somewhere, but. Uh, after the conclusion of the agreement with uh, ECOWAS, uh, transferring powers to the interim president, he knows today that he doesn't have any role to play, so he disappeared. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> because there is many things really uh, that are not realistic in my <coughs> views, uh, and we have to, uh, to. We talked about this uh, uh, the hunter uh, who is uh, have the majority or the support of uh, a solid base uh, uh, within uh, within the army. This is not true. In all coup, in all the world, especially in Africa, when you make a coup. Huh? When you make a coup, you declare the composition of your committee. This was never done by because uh, Sanogo and the others, they are uh, very low-ranking uh, soldiers in Malian army. All the superior-ranking uh, superior officers, they didn't join the, they didn't join the coup. Uh, they didn't join. No, no one uh, between them. So I will stop here. Maybe I will we'll comment after that. Okay. But uh, I don't want to okay. monopolize. Okay. Th thank you, Excellency. Uh, back there. Hi. Uh, thanks. Thanks for this. My name is Peter Tinti. I'm not affiliated with any particular organization, but my question is uh, specific to sort of the region of Gao and the groups that are operating there right now. A lot of us have been wondering if there's going to be another shoe to drop. Um, perhaps we'll the groups there start fighting each other, or um, will there be an uprising either among the, the Gandakoi and uh, Songhai militias? Will those populations start to rally against the MNLA or Ansardine? And finally, uh, there's the wild card of uh, Colonel Gamu just kind of hanging out at the border. Thanks. Rudy, anyone else? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny. The ambassador and I were just talking about Colonel Gamu. I think he's just sitting in Yame with his troops uh, right now, cooling his heels. I, I don't, I don't, I don't see him doing anything in the near future. Uh, Gangakoi, if we're talking about the Songhai militias moving north, and there's been some rumors that they're going to do that. The big thing is, is, is we haven't seen it, and and remember that was in the past funded by the Malian military. So right now, until until things are are pulled together in the south. Um, it, you know, it begs the question is exactly what's going to happen. The MNLA really wants, is trying very hard, and that's why this media campaign that they're, that, they're, that they're putting out there 
to the world is, is to control the optic of what their goals are. The one goal that they've stated is that they're secular, number one. Number two, that they represent all the people of the north. So not only the Tuaregs, but the Songhai and the Arabs and the Moors and the Pul and all that stuff. So number two is, is trying to resolve the differences. What may happen in Gao, at least they're talking right now, so they haven't turned to weapons. And, you know, for the time that I've spent with the, uh, just as a point, for the time that I spent with the, with the Tuaregs, I mean, I, I, saw, I saw Tablighis from Pakistan try to radicalize their youth. And I saw Tuaregs, I mean, physically was up in Kidal, and I saw Tuaregs tell me this is not going to happen on our dime because we don't want them to be radicalized. And so I think they're going to have to settle these differences to answer your question. And Gao, I, just how they're going to settle them is going to be a difficult thing. But remember, these guys that are outsiders, AQIM or whatnot, are outsiders. They don't want them to be part of that government. It's, it, it just begs the question on you know, what's going to happen in the next week or so. Yeah, that's really what we hope for. But I mean, I have a hard time making any difference between these different groups. Uh, to me, the result is that Al-Qaeda is consolidating in the northern part of Mali. Uh, I had some kind of accord card a few days back, framework of agreement, and they've been, fight, they've been disagreeing again, and we're waiting for Iyad Agali to come and, and sort out things out, and we know who he is. Uh, you mentioned Colonel Gamu. He's in Niger. He's in capital, Nyame, next to the capital, I mean, a few kilometers from the capital, with 500 people. Uh, I mean, his, his men they have been disarmed because that's the policy we had from the beginning, even with the people who came back from, from Libya when we could see them, of course. Uh, to me, uh, I want to believe that when the regional bodies and, and or you and find a solution, Colonel Gammon's people would be part of a solution, would help. That's what I want to believe. But you never know. So these folks, I don't make any difference. I mean, personally, I've been asking people around me, including my government, to try to understand if, if there is any, any difference. It's not clear yet. And so if it's not clear, since uh, Al-Qaeda has the resources, has the armament, has the ideology, ideology to turn young men's minds. To me, they are really the driving force. That's how I look at it. I want to be pragmatic in that sense. I don't want to get lost in, into thinking that, no, they're different, they're going to fight each other, etc. Till that happens. Did you want to add it? Yes, sure. Just, just the multiplicity of, of, of the jihadi groups and their influence on the ground, I think it must be understood in, uh, in the current context, which allows uh, small radical groups uh, to appeal to a wider uh, audience and to gain credibility uh, by building opportunistic uh, 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 coalitions. This does not mean that extremist groups are uh, uh, are eroding the differences that exist in Mali. Uh, certainly not the the social, the ethnic, uh, or or the economic uh, ones. Ideology has not played, uh, from what we see, a major role uh, today. People that support Ansar Dean, they support Ansar Dean not primarily because of their ideology, but because they have been able to deliver 
uh, more than than the, than the other groups deliver uh, I mean materially and in terms of of security and uh, and restore order that's an important element that's why there is some support to Ansar Deen not necessarily because of the ideology and we talked about their leader also who is uh, I mean who has uh, been shifting allegiances as as he went uh, as he went along uh, for the, the response to your excellency just look in Mali you know you know it better than I do obviously but we can see that there is a crisis of confidence uh, we cannot deny that there is a collective as I said earlier rejection of, of the political elite true like Mariko and others these do not have a major following and they're trying to capitalize on the momentum there is a momentum like we have seen I mean I'm not going to compare it to what we've seen in Tunisia and Egypt obviously different circumstances different contexts but there is resentment and anger at the political elite. True, as, as you yourself said, superior officers, the higher officers did not join the coup, obviously, because the coup is against them. I mean, it's the, it's the rank and file, obviously, that, uh, that, that revolted uh, against the top leadership, who they see, they perceive that it was corrupt while they weren't. We don't know whether uh, uh, they are or they are not, but they have not been associated, right, with the helms of power. And that's why they claim with some credibility, and you're right, some opportunism, that, uh, that they are better than the others. We have also seen that thousands of people have taken to the streets, not to support, let me correct the wording, uh, obviously not in support, but at least not in rejection to, uh, uh, to Sanogo. True, uh, the army is divided, but he has managed to consolidate his base Right? And those, the only thing we can say about the army is that there is, at least there is not opposition to him, if not support, of outright support. So if I say there is support to him, I retract that. But what we have seen is that he has a base, and at least there is no opposition for the time being. My readings of what's happening in, in Mali okay. again. But. Let, let me pick up on uh, something the uh, Ambassador Steve Cook, uh said that I think is very important. We need to be also uh, pragmatic in our analysis and not get lost in the weeds of parsing uh, how one group is, may or may not be ideologically tied. There's a, there's a current of pragmatism in this region. This is, and it's a lesson that we should learn well in Mali and it's applicable across the region that some of these uh, legitimate or not the opposition uh, or the resentment of the Torah, when the push came to shove, the MNLA needed an extra boost. And it turned to where it could and thought it could ride the tiger by seizing on Antaridine. And what we've seen in the control is, as the master, the Islamists have taken control. In, in Gao, the garrison in the center of town was taken over by Antaridine, and the MNLA were sent to the edge of town to the other barracks. In Timbuktu, they've, they and their assorted allies have set up an Islamic police and are trying to enforce upon the unwilling population a form of religion that is not theirs, has not traditionally been that uh, of the region, and the destruction not only of the, the monument uh, uh, to the peace, but also the destruction of the, the tombs of the shrines of the Sufi saints. It's, they're, they're imposing. They've, they've gained the upper hand. We've seen this elsewhere. I think it's a good warning also across the region where it might you know, uh, an analyst in armchair back here say, well, that's a liberation movement. They're seeking autonomy. Uh, and so uh, they won't turn things. But we've seen this liberation movement turn a, a territory into, you know, what's essentially a Star Wars bar of, 
of every sort of uh, uh, extremist group from throughout the region. So it's something worth bearing in mind. I think that lesson is applicable well beyond the borders uh, of Mali. Robert, up here. Thank you, Peter. My name is Bob Holly. I'm a retired Foreign Service officer, and I've spent a little time in North Africa. Um, given the, this is a question for the entire panel. Uh, given the depth and the intensity of the, of the and the longevity uh, of the problems between Northern Mali and the central authorities in Bamako, uh, the institutional crisis of Bamako notwithstanding, uh, do you think that there is any prospect that? Uh, some kind of autonomy or autonomy light arrangement might help heal the rift uh, between the northern part of the country and the central authorities in Bamako, and at the same time uh, provide a better structure for managing the threats of terrorists and radicals and criminals in that part of, of northern Mali. And secondly, what do you think would be the support uh, or opposition of other regional powers in North Africa, the Sahara Sahel region, to that kind of approach to solving the problem? I, I mean, that, that's an excellent question. I, I would hope, I would hope that they would probably push back to the, the National Pact of 1992, in which all the communities had one general agreement on how to, how to work with the North and the South. Uh, I mean, there are, there are several things that they had agreed to back then. Maybe they had to bring that back up and then, you know, um, resurface it and see if they can hash it out. I think Algeria will play a good role in that. They've played a role in the past. I think they should continue to play a role there. Neighboring countries as well, Mauritania and Niger, also are neighbors. I mean, when your house is on fire, you just want to make sure, uh, when your neighbor's house is on fire, you want to make sure that you go in there and support. So, so. In all honesty, I think what needs to happen is there has to the, the, the South has to get its act together, meaning Bamako first, <clears throat> before we can go to the next step. But in that process, the North is also trying to get its act together. So how we pull 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 all the strings into one pot, it's it, I mean, it, it's a toss up. I don't know. Anwar? It's the same. I mean, you have to consolidate. Or, or, or remember, in, in the in the south, you have to, and this is where ECOWAS comes, and obviously they have to assist in reconstructing the institutional <coughs> uh, design. Obviously, you have to restore uh, a political order before you deal. Obviously. Uh, with what's happening uh, in the north. But I think autonomy is the only game uh, in, in, in town. There is a huge resistance, obviously, to independence. It would set a dangerous precedent uh, for, uh, for neighboring countries. Uh, and, uh, and it goes uh, counter, obviously, uh, to what the EU, I mean, the African Union, is about. So there, there is no support out there. And I think that would set a, a, a bad precedent. So autonomy is the only game in plan, I think. I was this morning listening to the president of Benin, who is uh, the AU chairman, current, current AU chairman, and he was, after meeting President Francois Hollande of, uh, of France, he was suggesting that some sort of dialogue would have to take place, but quick one. Otherwise, they went to Security Council to try to find a solution to have a coalition of uh, goodwill, I don't know how to put it, to go and sort out the issues, which of course is very difficult. But going back to your question, uh, in Niger, what happened is that we had those kind of problems. 
and with jittery because any time you can have something can happen. You know, you know, some young folks can be shooting somewhere, and then you you get something started that you can control. But what we had is that uh, we didn't. Nobody talked about independence, or we want this region for ourselves. Because I also realized we're not the only people in those regions, even if they, they have ambitious leaders here and there. So we, uh, within the, 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 the decentralization system, we went for elections. Most uh, head of regions, mayors, chef de commune, etc., most of them were Tuareg. Some of them former rebellion people, because obviously they managed to have a vote and, and, and they won. Uh, during the past week, even this morning I was listening to our radio, we had a former head of a rebellion in Niger going around to different compromises saying, what's happening in Mali is not our piece of cake. We don't want that because it's going back. We, tr we, we try those kind of things already. We really want some kind of peace. They realize that they're also sitting in some kind of uh, hot spot. If something goes ba bad, but you have people who are not Tuaregs, per se. You have Arabs, like my minister was a few days back. Uh, you have uh, Hausas, you have Tubus, you have all kind of people who are not asking for the same things. So I think somehow, if that's where we're heading, we should be heading back via dialogue to avoid more fighting, is to see whether there is an institutional framework to, to go back to some type of normalcy for, for dialogue, for voting, for whatever it is. But I keep going back to the issue. How about the other actors who don't belong there and who are there? That's our problem. No, I think a point well taken. And I, uh, I would just uh, add to that that I think the autonomy, to answer your question directly, I think autonomy, if Mali agrees to it, and it has to be a decision of the Malians, yes. certainly uh, a vi viable prospect. An independent state that is not a viable alternative in this region. We, Africa has fi already 54 states. Uh, the last thing Africa needs is another failed state. And if you look at Azawad, you look at other Clements to independence, they're not viable. You forget about the political side. They're not viable economically and yet another failed state that attracts all of these troubled actors that the ambassadors emphasize. Uh, you know, at, le you know, at least, uh, with all apologies to the ambassador, at least it's landlocked. God help us if that were on the seacoast somewhere with all the same actors attracted together, uh, that would be a disaster. Uh, the ambassador, uh, I yield a moment to the ambassador and then. Uh, thank you, Chair. The, the question of autonomy or uh, large autonomy, all these questions can be uh, issues for negotiations with non-armed Tuaregs, non-armed Tuaregs. When we will start negotiation with them, we can talk about it. But already, uh, I think that uh, Anwar uh, mentioned this question of decentralization, who is very advanced in uh, in Mali about integration of uh, of, uh, of uh, Tuareg in all the institutions, Malian institutions. The, the vice chair, as vice speaker of the parliament in Mali is Tuareg. Mm -hmm. In all uh, Malian governments from 1960 to uh, the coup, there will be one or two uh, ministers in uh, the Malian uh, government. The first prime minister of Amadou Toumani Touré, when he was elected, he is Agamani, he is Tuareg. Uh, so this is, not, uh, this is not the problem. But 
uh, the, the question uh, concerning the, the, the army who was undersized uh, and under-equipped, uh, this is uh, a problem uh, directly linked to the Algiers Accords. Because the Algiers Accord uh, 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 asked the government of Mali to withdraw the majority of his troops from the northern part of Mali. Uh, this, is what, this was the first leg of uh, this uh, uh, Algiers Accord. Secondly, uh, the Malian government who signed this accord uh, had to integrate uh, the uh, Tuaregs in the high-ranking uh, commandment of, of the army. And as you see, on the 22nd of uh, March, uh, on January, on January, when the attack uh, started in Kidal and Minaka, all these high-ranking officers, Tuareg of Malian army, they went to MNLA. Uh, so you had this uh, first problem. The second problem is, uh, in reality, in conformity with the, the accord, the Malian army wasn't really present in the northern part of uh, Mali. Uh, so this is the two observations what I had to, uh, to make. But I want to, to really to mention that no coup can found uh, can find uh, can be justified, even if it's with corruption or other things. I will not take, uh, talk. Uh, I don't want to talk about this corruption or other things, but no coup can be justified. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, question, the, the lady right there? Uh, right, Alexi, right there. I'll be brief so you can get to this gentleman afterwards. Um, hi, uh, Alexis Area for the Congressional Research Service. Um, the ambassador touched on, on a related issue just now. Um, I, I wonder if the panel could speak a bit more about this issue of military integration, because it seems to me to have implications not just for the future of Mali, but for other countries in Africa that are figuring out ways of negotiating their way out of conflict. Um, on the one hand, perhaps the non-total integration of Tuaregs into the armed forces became agreements among Tuareg groups, and maybe you can speak about whether that was justified or not. Um, on the other hand, the links between integrated individuals and units and leaks uh, within the Malian military and defections to uh, non-state armed groups entrenched anger and, and discontent within the non-Tuareg ranks of the military. Um, what are the lessons learned from what we've seen so far as to how this should be done in the future? Not, I mean, particularly in Mali, but again, I think there are implications elsewhere. Um, especially if we're talking about a, a return to negotiated peace accords under a framework that has been tried before and of which integration is a, is a primary component. Okay. Well, after the second uprising in 92, all the way up to 94, there was an integration I mean, within the army. And so it was a painful process. They did, there were some growing pains that they had to go through. But the garrisons in the north were integrated. I, I personally visited them. I've seen Malians from the south and Tuaregs who were, who were inscripted into the military that were also part of the Malian military and together they, they, they worked against you know, any potential uprisings. The problem is, is that the Tuaregs in the north didn't want the mixture. They wanted certain areas that are controlled primarily by Tuareg militaries to handle those communities because they understood it. So that was, that was probably one, one key point. The other key point is 
at least from what I understand, the 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 bulk of the the construction that was happening more recently in recent years in the north that was focused instead of on development it was for, more focused on military installations in the north to beef it up concerns some of the Tuaregs. I understand they're a minority, but you know how do you fix that problem? I think there's got to be some agreement between both both communities. Those those agreements have been done in the past, but. They're not being honored because there's still distrust between between the north and the south. That continues to be pervasive throughout the years, and that's why you keep seeing, you know, uprising after uprising after uprising. I, you know, where do we go from here? I don't know if there's a solution. Until both sides agree, you're gonna you're gonna continue to have the same problem. There are certainly lessons to be learned from experiences or from what happened elsewhere, like in Niger. But I would say these things are really very context-specific, wanted or not. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, a reunited Mali or a Mali that is together and reflecting together would find its own solution to that problem. In, I can't imagine in my country, Niger, that you have integration of rebels with the ranks of colonels and generals in the in army. Army has rules. I don't know if it has entire military here, but I mean, I've seen them from a distance. But they have their rules. You just can't wake up and be a colonel, or wake up and be a general because you, you got some gun one, one day. First of all, our army would never accept that. Mm-hmm. Submit it or not to the, to the civilian, because it's submitted to the civilian, but the civilian would know that we have to go through a military to understand those things and do it the right way. When you miss that, when you get into problems, we, have, we integrated uh, Tuaregs into our army. Mm-hmm. They, they were rank and file. There were uh, sergeant, uh, lieutenant, etc. But we didn't. You didn't have generals and uh, and and colonel, except for those one who were already in the army, like a deputy chief of army staff. He's a Tuareg. Right? We don't have a problem with that. He's 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 a professional, etc. But not those who who took up to the mountains and came back and say, I want to be a general. So what do we have the army if you start doing that? Uh, so I mean, it has to be very very context specific. If I may, one one additional point. And, and, sir, I've been to your country as well and spent some time in Agadez, North Ndabus, all the way out to Dirku. The, the biggest problems you find in whether it's Mali or Niger is the area is so vast and those, the, land, the land space is so vast to control that it's, it's impossible. You have to have the number of troops. In the case of Niger, in the case of your country, well, at the time when I took your commander to Dirku, he hadn't seen Dirku in a year. And he had 2,000 men, yeah. and they were just communicating by phone mm-hmm. on what was going on. He hadn't have any presence. So you have to have presence. And the same thing in the north. I mean, we're talking in a land space here, Azawad, as they, they're calling it now, is, is bigger than the surface area of France. How do you control something like that? That's difficult. You have issues in the south that you have to deal with, but at the same time, from a purely militaristic standpoint, there's some, there's some differences. And that's, that's where you have porous borders, you have AQIM coming in, you have all these other issues that crop up. And so the people of those areas have to handle situations in their own way. Thank you. I think we're, uh, uh, we're nearing the end of our time, so I defer the, the last question to our host, uh, uh, Marina uh, uh, thank you very much. Marina Ottaway with the Carnegie Endowment. Uh, I hear two very different points of view expressed in the discussion. One that comes from Rudy and uh, Anwar, essentially, that says the situation on the ground is what it is. There is no solution but to try to negotiate and probably negotiate a solution, if I understood you correctly, based on a larger degree of autonomy. 
Then there is the other point of view, which is, uh, which says, well, you cannot really negotiate because these are dangerous groups, they're terrorist organizations because they don't belong, <coughs> most of them do not belong here, so that you are not negotiating with local groups, but with people who come from other countries and so on, and therefore we cannot. Uh, essentially, you have to, uh, you have to solve that problem first. <coughs> Taking that position that first you have to get rid of all these outside groups, essentially, means that you have to fight them. That the, that the only solution is, at least the first step, is a military solution. Because clearly they are well ensconced. They are not going to just pick up and go home like that. So the question is, who is there? Who can do the fighting? Who do you expect <coughs> to intervene? Is it ECOWAS? Is it other countries in West Africa? Do they have the capacity? Or are you expecting essentially, you know, the, 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 the sort of counterterrorism forces from the United States and European countries to do it? I guess the question is for me, right? No, it's a tough question. That's why the chairman of AU this morning was saying, uh, you know, negotiation, yes, but it has to be done quickly. But again, with whom do we negotiate? Uh, on the other hand, I don't see us staying and waiting for this to, to sort out, to get some kind of uh, situation where you have a people to negotiate with. Probably what might happen is if they get their act together very quickly, I mean, even MNLA, I said that all this was some to me, if they're really serious about the situation of the area, and knowing that nobody would accept Acme sitting in there and becoming the, the lord of a terrain, that they also say, okay, we want to talk to you. And then they talk with whoever we have to talk, but they have to talk with, uh, and that's the other problem we have. We have to talk with Malian government, which also has to sort out his, its, its situation in Bamako. We have to have somebody in Bamako. But I, I suspect we're going to be moving fast and having others just beyond just the Malian government to be discussing with, 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 with them. That's, that, that's my own way of looking at it. On the other hand, for the, for the terrorists, I, I don't understand something. Why would the US, why would France, what everybody knowing that these people in the Sahel would be worse than what we had in Afghanistan, wait and not try to take out some of these people, for example. I'm not saying send troops, but our troops, I mean, Niger, Mali, Mauritania, and of course you have to discuss with Algeria, etc. would have to have a, uh, the, the ressort to, to be ready to, re to request the support required to go through special forces, etc. After, after, after the real bosses there. Uh, you have drones to take out somebody uh, somewhere in Yemen. I mean, we should be focusing on all these things. I'm sure, uh, according <coughs> to what I'm hearing from, the vibes I'm getting from my own country, we're ready to go, provided we have uh, support, and that support can, can come from, uh, from, from Security Council uh, via AU, the Conseil de Sécurité de Paix, would have to, to, to be discussing those issues. Uh, our discussion with uh, our friends in the US and elsewhere would also, should also help. If you ask anybody here, I'm, sure, I'm not sure anybody will give you an answer here, even here in Washington and say, this is what we should be doing. But, but some kind of discussion have to take place very quickly. Um, my concern over and over again is that what, if we don't do that, what we may be facing would be worse than what the situation we have now. It's as simple. 
Reader's Digest, real quick, if I if I may. Number number one, Mr. And I'll 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 kind of jump in and take through. First of all, Algeria was very successful in 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 gutting out GSPC before it became AQIM. Mm -hmm. The reason why they were very successful, their amnesty program had some relative success. Guys like Hassan Hattab, the guys that formed the the GSPC, were some of the ones that went 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 over onto the government side. In order to win, they went through a name change, and that's where AQIM comes in, circa 19, 2007. They started bringing foreign fighters from the outside to fill in those gaps that GSPC took. Now, once they got those gaps, throughout the process, we, the United States government, have done the Pan-Sahel Initiative yeah. that later on became the Trans-Sahara Counterterrorism Initiative, OEFTS, and so on and so forth. We have worked with all the governments of Mali, Niger, Mauritania. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, we chased guys like uh, uh, you know, Abdel Riza Alpar all the way out to Chad. We worked collectively with all the governments. So, we are present. The problem is, is AQIM today is now foreign fighters. If you look at the recent letters that came from Abu Tab from, from um, bin Laden's compound, he told them back then to focus on Western targets. If we do show up boots on the ground anywhere in that area, we give them a raison d'être. And that's a problem. So that's number one. Number two, you have to do it. Number three, you have a group called the MNLA and Tuaregs that are very resistant and, and want to be secular. They don't want to be radicalized. We need to capitalize on this capability, that, our, that indigenous capability to turn against these guys and push them out. That's where we need to kind of leverage that. And that's a way, that's a way an entree in. The problem is, is we need to get the act together in, in the region. So we need to get a good government that's solid base that we can work with. We need to work regionally as partners. And that's where we need to go. That's just my... Okay. Uh, I, I, I don't want any last word. Uh, yeah, I mean, sure, obviously there, there can't be a military intervention until you sort out the mess in, in the south. Uh, second, there is a lot of, of mistrust of, of the French, that's number one, of ECOWAS. ECOWAS has not done a good job in explaining exactly what it wants and what it intends to do. That's number two. Three, you know, who can do the fighting? I, I, I don't know, Mali, obviously, for now, it, you know, it, it can't, as it has demonstrated to. Niger and Mauritania, these are the only two, I believe, that have, uh, uh, that, that, uh, that, uh, that can participate. The problem is that both of them combined, I think they have over 20,000 soldiers, yeah. so the only thing they can contribute is a few hundreds each, so as not to compromise their own security. Uh, Nigeria plays a role, sure, but the problem is that Nigeria uh, cannot, I believe, uh, perform well in that terrain that it doesn't know very well. And then the, you know, it's Algeria. They have and the Air Force, and Algeria knows how to do it. Anyway, but no, you're absolutely right. Algeria has has a role to play, but there's so much ambiguity about what Algeria wants. You talk to Algerians, they draw a distinction, obviously, between the say two Qaeda's, Qaeda in the north, their own Qaeda, which is completely different, they say, from Qaeda in the south. So there's a lot of suspicion that they're just happy to have driven those guys out. Into, into the Sahel, they don't want an intervention. There's also double speak that we have noticed in Algeria. I mean, they, they blame the Malians and the, Maurit and, uh, and the Mauritians for not doing enough, but they themselves are not doing enough. So this is, I yeah. believe, this is where well, we are. I, I, unfortunately, our, our time has come to an end because uh, of the room and others, but I think you've clearly seen that uh, this is a topic that's uh, very, very much uh, of concern to many people. It's a topic that 
doesn't bear simple solutions, and it's one I'm, I anticipate we will have further opportunity to explore in greater detail and greater uh, inclusiveness of, of other perspectives as well. So I think it's one we will return to and look forward to. So with that, I'd like to ask you to join me in thanking the panel and. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.